What's up, everybody? Co-host Nelson Santiago, homies of lit. Please offer episode two of Authors Insights. And now, spend our introduction over to co-host Randy. Hi, right, what's up, everybody? It's your co-host Randy. Um, for our second episode of Authors Insights, we'll be focusing on the book within the episode, as opposed to the episode we did with San Francisco Narrows, where we did the book first and then the conversation. And our focus today is the memoir Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. Um, he's an author from LA. Um, he's primarily a poet, um, but I feel like this book, and I'll be reading a few sections uh, in a couple of minutes, I, I feel um, that the memoir kind of reads like a prose poem in a lot of ways. Um, like there are several sections I took notes on where I literally just wrote straight poetry, pure poetry. Like it kind of um, has a poetic cadence to it that um, kind of reminds me of hip hop a bit, which I think is really dope. But um, as per our last few episodes, we'll be focusing a lot on the idea of toxic masculinity and how that's represented, particularly within inner city cultures. Um, in the case of this book and our last one, Oscar Wilde, within broader Latino culture. Um, so with that, I'll let our author, Luis Rodriguez, introduce himself. Well, thank you for being here. Um, I don't have too much more to say other than it's an honor to be able to talk with you all, uh, and especially on this topic of uh, toxic masculinity, which is a big issue for all our, our especially our gente, our men, our um, young men. How much guidance can they get to what it is to be a fool? healthy male you know we need it more in our communities and it's hard when a world tries to mutate you you know the way that i felt that i was done growing up myself so thank you thank you for having me here and talk about this yeah, of course thanks for joining us um and also thanks and shout out to sandra cisneros for connecting us um and making this happen she's opened up some nice doors for us i'm very appreciative of that um so before, again, before we start our conversation, I want to read a few passages, both to kind of illuminate the text to our listeners and also to kind of hone in on a few sections that I thought were quite powerful. Um, so the first section actually comes in the first chapter. Um, for anyone who has the book, um, I believe it's the, I can't remember which anniversary edition, but regardless, um, it comes on page 19 of the first chapter and the first paragraph of the page starts like this. Our first exposure in America stays with me like a foul odor. It seemed a strange world, most of it spiteful to us, spitting and stepping on us, coughing us up as immigrants as if we were phlegm stuck in the collective throat of this country. My father was mostly out of work. When he did have a job, it was in construction, in factories such as Sinclair plants, or standard brands dog food, or pushing doorbells selling insurance, Bibles, or pots and pans. So yeah, for me, I, I think the going back into um, before here was kind of the beautiful description of how immigrants are kind of just chewed up and spit out by American culture, the spitting and stepping on certain things and how powerless their parents felt in those situations. Um, so I feel like that really encapsulated that bit for me. And for me, the next one comes on page 51 in chapter two, um, which I thought was just a beautiful description of kind of like the, just the environment of being in the inner city, but also being in um, 
just the neighborhood, right? Which is kind of central to your experience for anyone who grew up in the inner city. On the course road, Pan proclaimed our existence. Past La India shed where boys discovered the secret of thighs and the din of whispers, past Bertha's garden of herbs and midnight incantations, past the Joppo's liquor store, past the empty lots scattered around the barrio, we called the field. Escape, right? You have a gang. And a lot. Of, I think a lot of people, and we'll probably talk about this, I'm sure, throughout the episode, kind of neglect. And she, if I'm not mistaken, was part of the rival gang. Um, and he says, I can't let my boy get jumped. She's like, you know, you have to be able to let that go. You can't keep getting pulled back into the streets. And, um, this last moment happens when he notices his boys are going to help out the one dude that's about to get jumped. Viviana stroked my face with a fingertip. Voices heightened below. Her lips parted and the eyes closed. Bottles crashed. Trash cans tumbled over. Viana breathed into my mouth and I licked her lightly with my tongue. Sounds of shooting, strange shout, strong urge and need to survive and kind of persevere through things regardless of what's going on. Um, so yeah, that's all I wanted to say about those bits. Um, I kind of want to pose a, a question because um, you end off the book by, with an epilogue, at least this edition. And you talk about your son and how he went to this poetry reading in Chicago, the poetry festival, and he wrote this poem called Running Away. Mm-hmm. And the title of the book is Always Running. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask, because this reminded me of this thing that, um, which I'll explain later, but I always tell people that I tell myself, once you stop running, you start dying because... Like you're going to fall back into these things that have kind of been pulling you back into this darkness. Um, so I kind of want to ask, like for you, what does running away mean? Well, I think the running, we're always from something more than true something. So we're running from cops. We're running from gang members. And it was a motif that we had in the streets. And as you know, um, I started off in Watts. That was the first community that I grew up in. And then um, from Watts, I went to this really poor neighborhood that at the time was the poorest neighborhood in LA County. And it was called, uh, we called it Las Lomas, the hills. It looked like Appalachia. You know what I'm saying? You've been pictures of Appalachia, but, yeah. but it was more denser, more compact, but it was dirt roads, little shacks, and we were surrounded by these white suburbs. So what you have in this book is three things. You have race, you have class, and then you have the male issues that we're talking about. I had to confront all of them. Uh, class, because we were impoverished. And when you have white suburbs and you look at the race thing, how come white people have a good neighborhood and we're living, I mean, they had sidewalks and strip malls and they have restaurants. We're living in these impoverished places uh, with helicopters constantly over your head and police cordon off whole the main streets to get in there. and. Um, and then rival gangs coming at you. So it was constant warfare. But then you're also thinking about what it is to be a male, which is, has to do with we were running from everybody and everything. I think the issue with my son is that he joined a gang in Humboldt Park in Chicago. And, and as you know, especially in the, in the 90s, it was really bad in Chicago. 
it's bad now, but they don't, people don't know it was actually worse. And uh, he got pulled in during that time. And he became one of these violent gang members. And as you all know, I think in the introduction of that particular edition, you know, and when you live in poor neighborhoods and people are always blocking you, that's what you feel. And then the third thing is, again, how do you raise a young man in that environment? How do you raise him to be healthy? It's very hard. The gang begins begins raising your kid. You know what I'm saying? And um, and, and their masculinity is all mutated. I know I grew up that way. I didn't have a dad that could teach me anything because he didn't. He was a very emotionally frio, as we would say. He was cold, didn't really connect. And uh, my mom couldn't teach me these things. And so who's going to teach me? The homie in the corner. The guy that was old, had tattooed and built. He was only a few years older than me, but he was already a veteran. He was already, oh, oh, gee, you know, he looked up to the dude because he'd been to jail or whatever. Um, and then he's telling you what, what it is to be a man. Get a gun. Always die, uh, do or die, kill, be killed. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, they were in my neighborhood. They were um, doing, when I mentioned in the book, they were uh, doing terrible things that some of which I didn't participate in, but they raped women. They kidnapped girls from rival neighborhoods. They killed some of them. It, it got really bad. It got so bad. It's like I, it wasn't like I didn't sign up for that, but I didn't know how to let it go. Uh, I got deeper into the heroin, you know, because that's how you try to escape everything, including the, the contradictions of your own homies. I remember sitting in juvenile hall and hearing guys crying, trying to hold the muffle their cries. You know what I'm saying? Because if anybody heard who it was, they'd be bad shape. Uh, these are men or boys that need to cry. Yet they, there's no place to do it. What does that do to you as a man? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and it, it hardens you and it makes you less of a man and then it rages you because pretty soon uh, you don't have no outlet but rage. You know what I'm saying? You can't cry, you can't feel, and you can't. So the only outlet is eventually you explode. So you get triggered, something happens, you don't even know what it is. And that's what I think we have to address. So it's all those things, the, the race, class, and the, the male uh, mutations that were growing up in these neighborhoods. And you know, and to be honest with you, even if uh, Humble Park was completely different than LA, and there's two different worlds, two different communities, the gang structures aren't the same, the politics and gangs are different, but I will tell you what's the same, um, that you have to address. We were all under, underlying, it was the same in Humble Park as it was in East LA. Hope I'm making sense, you know. You look at the community, they don't look the same, you, different gangs, but the underlying thing works out to be the same. Why we join gangs and how we become the kind of gang members that we do. Yeah, like I, I remember I actually visited LA for the first time last November, um, and my friend she, like talking about kind of like the intersection of the class. That's for me. That's always been the thing that has really kind of triggered um, a lot of things I've done: the writing, agreeing to do this podcast, going to college, and research I did. Like I went to visit her, and she worked. Uh, her office was actually in Skid Row like right beside it it was like you know though i forget what they called it like you know they always like now humble park um if you look at actual city maps now humble park is two neighborhoods there's east humble park then there's west humble park like east humble park is cool west humble park you don't want to fuck with because you know that's where all the poor people and the puerto ricans and the black people and the mexicans still are but here I was in this, um, she dropped me off on her way to work. I checked out her office and literally you walk a block down and there are people who are 
doped up on heroin. There are rows of tents. Like, it's, there's just like, I mean, like anyone who's lived in an inner city or like just walked through an inner city um, after having been in a different space, like, for example, if you're in Chicago going from Worker Park to West Humble Park now, you can feel the shift in energies. Like there's, there's a tension in the air. Like when people say something is palpable, I've never felt anything more palpable than the tension in inner city. Yeah. And, but like, there's this, I feel like the classified drives so much of it. Um, and the classified is almost intrinsically linked with the racial divide. Yeah. But like when I walked through Skid Row after having gone to my friend's office in this nice ass building that had a little strip mall there, I just like, it just felt like, like, I just felt like I was transported back to Humble Park in Chicago mm-hmm. or Logan Square or mm-hmm. all these areas that have gotten gentrified and where we just gotten pushed out and where you can see that on one side of a street, like people are living very well, their life is lavish. And then on the yeah. other side, people are in squalor exactly. and they're suffering. It's not just poverty. Like, you know, these people are literally stripping their lives away slowly with the heroin, right? In order mm-hmm. not to feel the pain. Yes, right. Like... And it just numbs them to all existence. And like when when I went there, I just like I have this thing where I always have to go to inner city and whatever city I visit because I'm like that's what would be like in my understanding what would have been home for me. And so I have mm-hmm. to like in order to fully appreciate a city, I have to go to the inner city regardless of the risks that come with that. Yeah. But yeah, going walking through Skid Row really set me back. Like I I hadn't been that deep in any inner city in a while. Um, because again, my neighborhoods don't even look the same anymore, but yeah, it just, I, I, I just mentioned again, to go back to a point that like, I feel like class, like people neglect it very often. Um, but it is such a huge driver in these issues that take place in these communities and, you know, why, like so many of us, like we suffer so much economically while we're kind of numb to all the other things that happen in the community, because we all know that we have to scrape by to get by, right? I also think that the nature of it is by design. I mean, this is what people are talking about now, the systemic nature of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's an important point because you always think it's my fault. I'm homeless. They're not. Look, people are getting homeless. And LA's got worse. Skid Row is now all over LA. I don't know if you've been here lately. Those those tents are everywhere now. Yeah, Um, I did see a lot. But it it was always trying to confine it to certain places. But now everywhere you go, it's it's because of gentrification. People are being pushed out of their homes. They're creating tent cities right next to the places they used to live. But those places now look nice, you know, and because they can't, they never found homes for these people. They thought, well, we're going to send them to the desert in L.A. And there is, there's whole communities of South Central and East L.A. in the deserts, you know, but it's not enough. And so... What I think you get the, the idea is that it's by design. First of all, we were restricted in the kind of housing we could have in Chicago and in LA. Again, two different cities, but they had same underlying things. They were the two most industrial cities in the country. People think Chicago or Detroit, actually LA and Chicago were the two most industrial. They had a lot of industry in both areas. I worked in a steel mill and people think, oh, you worked in a steel mill in Chicago. No, it was in LA. I was a steel worker there. I, there, was a lot, there was a lot of industry. and just like Chicago, we lost almost all this industry. 80s, 90s, industry was gone. You know, um, those communities that had steel mills and stockyards, almost all gone. You know what I'm saying? We went to the same thing where people were pushing industry out and all our communities were left hanging. So then gangs that had been around for a while 
become the most cohesive economic force in these poor communities mm. because their jobs are gone. You know, now you have to work and get hardly any pay for the kind of work you do, service work, cleaning hotels, whatever it might be, uh, even working at a fast food restaurant, it's different than working in industry. So we went through the same thing. And then you can see, man, this is why gangs got bigger and stronger. You remember what happened in the 90s, all, all of us happened at the same time. So to me, it's, it's about the design that we don't want to talk about, how they restricted neighborhoods for black and brown people, how they restricted it to certain places. The housing projects, for example, remember in Chicago, there was almost all black to big high rises, but mm -hmm. there was the bicker dykes, which had Puerto Ricans and other people there. They, they were all being restricted. And, um, and even if you wanted to have a choice, what choices did you have to live in certain neighborhoods? You didn't have those choices. And then, of course, when gentrification comes, there's a whole rolling machine that creates gentrification possible that police get harder on the gangs. The gangs start fighting each other even harder, more guns. Just to, you know what I'm saying? Things start happening. Uh, I, when I was in Chicago, they used to have this thing called pre-approved loans so you can buy a house. Pre-approved loans were not given to the blacks, Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans. You know what I'm saying? I know that for a fact. Because I had neighbors where I was sending my house in Logan Square, that place I lived, uh, I asked my neighbors, buy this house. Don't let the gentrifiers take it because they were already beginning to come in. Yeah. They couldn't get a pre-approved loan. My neighbors, hardworking people, guess who got pre-approved loans? All these white yuppies that showed up on my doorstep with pre-approved loans. You know what I'm saying? This is by design. Everything gets set up this way. I had to sell it to some white people because I couldn't find my neighbors. They couldn't get pre-approved loans to buy that, that house. See what I'm saying? Then it becomes like, oh, it's a vicious cycle. We're being denied the possibilities that others aren't. And this, of course, contributes to it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take responsibility for what happens in our communities, that we shouldn't be more community-minded, that we shouldn't help the youth and all these things. But I do say that they put us against the wall. You know what I'm saying? And Skid Row is an example of the end of the road. There's nowhere to go after Skid Row. And you're living in tents and for blocks and blocks and blocks. Um, you know, that's it. There's no, where else are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. Uh, I had a friend who said he would go around the world and he never saw Skid Row before. He'd been to Calcutta. He'd been to these poorest places. When he got to Skid Row, I took, he was a New Zealand guy from New Zealand who lived in London, but he's sitting there and he starts having tears in his eye and he goes, this is worse than Calcutta. And I go, what do you mean it's worse than Calcutta? He goes, people living in tents in the street, heroin everywhere prostitution right there and all kinds of things going on yeah i remember um in 2017 i studied in guatemala um I, I didn't grow up we didn't spanish actually but we went so i was in a quetzaltenango which is like southwest I've been there. i know guatemala is a beautiful country man yeah so i was in uh the capital city in shela yeah. and right next to it maybe like a 20 minute drive or so is a pueblo called sunil and mm -hmm. It's like 90% indigenous uh, Mayan, and but it's an extremely impoverished place, yeah. like very impoverished. Um, there's a river that cuts through it. The river is very heavily polluted. You go through a lot of the buildings, like a crumbling. And really the only things that are holding it together are like these uh, co-ops that are run by women that kind of sound like the textiles and things. Yeah. But I remember when I went to, um, 
when I was walking through Skid Row, it really, like, again, I kind of had like the same thoughts. I also studied in China. We went to like some really low income uh, little towns. And I remember like the, like the contrast again, in the States, I think like um, going on off your friend's point, like it's, it almost feels dystopian and that like you can see mm-hmm. very clearly that there is wealth in this space. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. what always, that's what's always bothered me. Um, about growing up in these spaces is that you see a lot of people right next to you, you know, alongside you just prospering and, Mm -hmm. you know, it drives, it it fuels this, uh, this hatred inside of you. And really, I feel like kind of drives those uh, negative tendencies and a lot of the youth in these neighborhoods, especially the boys, right? Like uh, in Latino households, you're always told you have to provide um, regardless of your age, like you have to contribute that way. Um, so yeah, I kind of, I, I, I definitely resonate with that point. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to realize that people have to understand the systemic nature of this again, because this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, uh, even with the migrants coming either from Puerto Rico or Mexico into Chicago, they were being driven, pushed out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They couldn't survive in, in their own homelands. They, who would want to leave beautiful places like Puerto Rico and, and most of Mexico? Yeah. You know, uh, they wouldn't leave, but they have to. There's no economic life. It's being controlled by a few companies, you know what I'm saying? Pretty soon you have to leave just to survive. So that pushes you out, but then where are you being pushed into? And how do you survive in that world? As you know, Humble Park was three-story flats, you know? Uh, people were living everywhere, including basements. You know, people were trying to survive fit families and wherever they could. I remember how it used to be in Mozart uh, over there by Augusta where I lived. Uh, and I and we knew the families, we knew what was going on and, and people were trying to make it. They were trying to survive the best way they could. They worked wherever they could. They was hardworking people, but they couldn't get enough to survive. And then you see their sons and then they're working two or three jobs, even the ones that do make it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, mothers having to work two or three jobs, fathers who, you know, who knows what happened to them. So what you're gonna lose your kids, they're locked key, uh, what do you call it, um, they're less uh, key kids, you know, they, they're not, they, nobody's taking care of them. Yeah. And that's what happened to uh, most of the kids that I remember at Humboldt Park. Um, they wanted fathers. They wanted good relations with adults. There was no adults. There was hardly anybody that was even willing to take, fill in the gap. You know, there was hardly any mentors, any guides. Or, yeah, maybe somebody might got into sports. Maybe somebody got into uh, a job somewhere, maybe, but there wasn't hardly that many. So the they're going to fall into those gaps. You see that in almost all the big cities in the country. And so I think that's what's important what you're pointing out. Again, how do we help young people through this? I, that's been my job, what I've been doing since I left the gang. I actually been doing this for 50 years. I left the gang. I left heroin after seven years and nine years in the gang. Um, but I decided to go back and help others. I decided that I'm going to be two things. One, I'm going to develop my skills as a writer because there was no writer from my body or from my neighborhood or from my community. I didn't see any. I read Malcolm X. I read, we talked about Perry Thomas down these mean streets. I read Claude Brown. I read James Baldwin. I love all those books, but I didn't see my hint there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Perry Thomas was the only one that was close, Puerto Rican out of New York. Uh, but other than that, you couldn't find our people. So I wanted to, I got to do it. I got to write. It took me a long time to become a writer. But the other thing I did is I went back to help kids. I started working with gang kids. I started changing their lives. I started going to prisons 40 years ago. This year, 40 years, I would I started going to prisons and I do uh, either 
healing circles, poetry or readings, and I do creative writing classes. I just uh, got through um, 13 years. I was this one big prison here in LA County, state prison, high security prison. And I, I just, for the first time, been pushed out because of the COVID-19 mm. and not letting anybody in the prison, so I can't go back. But that's the work that I do. Uh, I decided to go back and help those. Uh, I was fortunate that I, I got arrested for all kinds of things. I was in juvenile hall, I was in that jails, and I was in two adult facilities, but I didn't end up getting the state prison time that a lot of my homies did, that mm -hmm. my own son did. But I didn't want to forget them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I went, I went back to say, how can I help? To me, I've been doing that, and I did that in Chicago too. The 15 years I lived in Chicago, I worked with some heavy-duty gangsters. You know what I'm saying? I did prison visits. I went to the Juvenile Hall of Member St. Charles when it was going around, and other places. I went to the Audi Home. Every year, I would speak to kids, and then I would go to prisons throughout Illinois. Um, and then when my son ended up in prison, then I would have to try to visit him and deal with with all the stuff he was going through. Um, that's the work that I do. I love doing that work, but again, it has to do with giving people the tools, the resources, the connections, whatever they need to help themselves. Because what I learned growing up is nobody's going to save me. You know what I'm saying? People say, well, somebody's going to say nobody, but I do need help. Give me, show me the ropes. Teach me what I need to do. Uh, give me, open the door out. Let me walk on through it. I'll, but open the door at least. In other words, don't save me. Give me the tools to save myself. Hope I'm making sense. And that's the way that I work with kids. I work with a lot of Chicago Humboldt Park kids, and we actually worked in Humboldt Park, Logan Square. I'm talking about heavy-duty gangsters, and uh, talking about Pilsen, Little Village, talking about Southside, uh, back of the yards, talking about Uptown. I worked with a lot of heavy-duty gangsters in some rough neighborhoods. And uh, most of them did well, but we lost some of them. Some didn't make it. We lost three of our leaders who got killed. Uh, we lost kid people to drugs. We lost people to prison, my son included. Uh, he actually was convicted and sent to prison for 28 years. And the only thing that saved him is that uh, he was supposed to do 85 to 100% of his time. And he was declared unconstitutional in the state of Illinois at the time he got convicted. Mm. So he got out with good time, half, you know, doing um, what's called day for day. You know, good time, half the time. And he got out actually with six months less. So he did 13 and a half years of that stretch. He had already done uh, a year and a half before that. So he's done a total of 15 years in Illinois, Illinois State Prisons, but he's very blessed. He's lucky. I told him, you don't know how lucky you are. You don't know how many people uh, can don't get these breaks. You better make the most of it. And just so you know, two days ago, my son celebrated 10 years of being released in prison. That's incredible. He got released in, yeah, in 2010. He'd spent, he's now got 10 years being sober, clean, and release and it wasn't easy it was not an easy struggle i've helped him every step of the way he loves chicago chicago is his home he's staying living with me now but his dream is to go back to chicago only we want to make sure he goes back there in a good way you know what i'm saying uh, but that's the struggle you have to have how do you help these men these women coming out of these institutions how do you help so they don't fall back what do you what, what do you what resources and connections do you provide for them that to me is the story of what was running and, it, and again, going back to what you're saying, it isn't about stop running. I get, I, I get it's not just stop running. Maybe it's knowing how to run, having traction in the right direction, knowing what your really direction should be. What is your destination going to really be? Then you can run towards that, you know, with some, you know, with some strength, you know. Yeah, just talking from what I did here, um, 
and the points, and like how Randy pointed out here, uh, talking about kids falling through the gaps in the inner cities or how, uh, you know, it's about running in the right direction. I feel like that's the issue that I guess, you know, everyone I know is having. Uh, me, I'm going to be 23 and on Tuesday, you know, I've, when I was in high school and stuff, you know, I was in a gang, uh, you know, I had lost a lot of friends, still losing them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at some point, you know, I joined the military and then I really tried to like put myself in some sort of like onward path, right out of where I was going. Um, and eventually I just ended up right back in the same place. Yeah. You know I mean, um, growing up and I know you also mentioned like no role models pretty much. Right. Like, you know, we didn't have a dad, so I'm in the hood. Like you said, the guy's a few years older than I am, but he's one of the older heads. He's been around a few years and shit. So you just listen to them and yeah, they're just sending you off, man. In my opinion, you know, it just going out there, um, just doing some nonsense, you know what I mean? Or, and I, I remember what I did read from the book. Um, you know, I remember my initiation was about three minutes also, you mm-hmm. know? So, and mm-hmm. I remember what ensued after that. It almost feels like it's three hours. Oh yeah. And I feel like every, people don't count right when they're giving you that initiation, yeah. man. You know? So yeah. I, you know, I remember that. And then I just remember thinking like, uh, you know, I've tried to take, I've pretty much just tried to figure it out on my own. And a lot of us have. And the thing is, is when we're trying to figure it out on our own, eventually we just go back to what it is that we know, which is exactly what we were trying to get away from. And I feel like that's yeah. like the endless circle that we've been going in for generations before us. And, you know what I mean? And and that is why, uh, for example, with Homies Lit, I remember I just kind of called Randy one day and said, well, we should really try to bridge that gap. You know, Randy went to college. Um, I'm still in the city, you know, obviously I don't hang out on gaming anymore. I have my wife, four kids, you know what I mean? And I really just try to find ways to um, give a voice to what's going on over there. You know what I mean? Because that's exactly right. You're doing the right thing. And you know what, especially cause you've been through it, then you carry some weight here. And I tell people, if you got that weight, use it in a good way, help somebody go and, and then you don't have to save the whole world, but help, people give them what you know you've been there you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and that's like exactly it you know i just think about from what i have you know come to the conclusions i've come to on my own whether it's because i had kids and i really just thought like yeah i'm not my kid my kids are going to be teenagers and going to high school and if i have one son the rest are daughters uh, two of them are a little mm-hmm. bit older um, from my uh wife's previous uh, relationship so 12 almost you know in high school and then 10 so i'm like they're just going to run into you know, all the little local game bangers and shit, you know, and then my son, when he comes of age, what are we going to do with him if he's still in the world that, that I grew up in? Because yeah, I, yeah. I felt like That's I rough. didn't have many options, you know? And so I just thought about when I was walking those streets, right? When we were all, you know, recruiting people and fighting the cops and fighting other gangs, you know, and I'm from Humble Park, so it was all, you know, mm-hmm. insanes and maniacs, shit like that. So reading mm-hmm. the book, I'm just yeah, like, yeah. yeah, this is the exact same shit I was dealing with, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I really just thought like, okay, well, we know what it is that we had, right? So that means I yeah. also know what it was that I didn't have. So I just really just trying to be what I didn't have because I, if there's ever a solution, it's I know what there's an abundance of and it's not helping us. So we got to yeah. bring more of what we're lacking. So I just been trying to fill that yeah. gap. Like, you know, that's the whole point. Like with homies are lit, we're really just trying to bridge the gap because if we don't have anyone to turn to at this point in time, if someone's mm-hmm. in high school, and they hear about one of us and we're the older guys now, right? Well, then it's our responsibility yeah. to have a better example for them than the older guys that we looked up to who were sending us off and whooping our ass out That's there in the streets. True. 
So that's, you know, what I try to do. I still talk to, you know, my friends and stuff in the hood and all the younger yeah. cats and tell them, like, look, man, no. You know, when they're trying to, like, turn out and shit, it's like, that. We, we, we don't do that no more. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have. I did the same thing. I did it with a lot of my homies. You know, just so you know, some of them didn't like it. I got shot at by two of my homies. You know, that's just the nature of the world that, that you're in. And, um, yeah, it's, it ain't cool, but, I mean, it, it's just the reality. Um, I thought I could change things, and I realized that some people don't want change. Most guys did, by the way. Most of my homies were listening. They loved it. Dude, you're not in that world, okay? But all it takes is a full fuse. Fools, you know, they just, they want to make a name for themselves, and uh, they try to kill me, take me out. That, to me, is serious. That's a betrayal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But at the same time, I get it. Some people don't want you to shake that boat because that boat means power for them. Uh, as you're talking about some of these older guys, I remember uh, my, my son Ramiro uh, in Humboldt Park, the two main guys that ran the gang there, um, they were always, they didn't even live in the neighborhood. They had family in the suburbs. They would come all the way to Humboldt Park. They grew up in Humboldt Park, but they weren't there and start ruling these guys and getting them watching out selling drugs and, and with guns so that they could take on all the rivals, but they weren't doing it. And when they would come in and bust people, they were the first ones that got Out away. Yep. I know. I was like, dude, they're using you. And I had to, it was hard for my son to get it, but you know, I had to tell him, these men, these are men using you young people. It's hard to convince people, but again, you got to give them what you know, the knowledge that you're pointing out there. And you know, I grew up in a situation where there's three generations of incarcerated people. My dad was incarcerated in Mexico. So all of a sudden, and I'm getting incarcerated in L.A., you know. And then worse was my son. It's sad to see three generations of men, you know, following that, that trek. And then uh, just I have um, great-grandkids and grandkids. So my one of my granddaughters uh, about two years ago was arrested because she was on crystal meth and fentanyl. And then they arrested her, and she kind of woke her up a little bit because after that, she started to finally listen to us about getting help. She was four years. She wouldn't have made it the fifth year, honestly. With fentanyl, the way it's going on, yeah, she wouldn't have made it. That Actually, that arrest, at least it looks like right now, she's your age, dude. She's like, why? She's about 25 and I know. She's 26 now. But she, for four years, was on this, and you couldn't find her nowhere. You know how it is. You're looking down yeah. the streets. Uh, you can't find them. They're hiding. They got places to go. I said, Where's my granddaughter? We didn't know where she was. And and then um, she gets arrested, so we find out. And then she says, I don't really want to go to jail. Okay, well, then let's work on this. She's been now recovered for, I think, a year and a half. So anyway, you're letting you know, I don't want another generation, my grandkids, to follow the same thing. As much as possible, i got to avoid that. Yeah, yeah, I feel exactly the same way, you know, and as, for as far as, you know, like, talking about how it's generational, like, uh, that's one of the things, and Randy can attest to this, you know, both – our mom and our dad and uncles, they were all gang members, mm -hmm. all from the same, mm -hmm. all from the same gang that I, that I joined. Yeah. As a matter of fact, in the same neighborhood. And then yeah. at some point in time, the same exact set, you know, like that, yeah, yeah. it, it, it literally trickled down. But uh, yeah. And, and the that's, thing is, one of the reasons why I, when I think about my kids and about how we set that example is because one of the, one of the biggest issues, I, I, I know we talked about how, you know, the system really has it lined up for us. But one, yeah. I, one thing that I, I want to mention is, is that one of the main reasons I think it was so easy for me to join a gang is because my my dad, my uncle, my mom, everyone, they glorified it. 
they yeah, glorified it. They talked yeah, about yeah. the glory days, how they had it down yeah. packed and everything. So when I was in the streets and people were coming at me yeah. and I was, you know, like we talked about, you got to be a man. I was getting jumped and I wasn't, you know, wasn't showing no fear. And eventually I found myself up against so many people. And then I thought, well, you know what? My dad, my mom, they talked about how they had this shit under control because they had a whole nation behind them. So I turned out yeah. the same nation as them. And it was this weird thing how when they found out, because they didn't really raise it, but they found out my mom was like, well, I did it, so I'm not going to say anything to you. And my dad kind of had this like condescending tone like, oh, you shouldn't have joined, but when I did it, I did it right. So he told me that there was a yeah. way. You see, my dad is – see, if there's anything my dad's yeah. good for, is he, I know to be the exact opposite if I want to have a good effect on my children. That's a good – Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's a good thing to say. And, and I really do. Like when I think about – just. You know, I'm I'm 23 years old. I have four kids. I have to set an example for, and I really just think yeah. about well, what examples were set for me, and all the things that followed yeah. that that I have to carry with me. So at least the blueprint is to be the exact opposite of things like, oh well, you should have joined the gang and you should have did it this way because there's a right way to be a gang member, and that's the kind of shit that I've carried around, and yeah. that's the kind of shit that got me into a lot of trouble, lots of injuries, and I spent a lot of time holding friends dying. You know what I mean? And I can tell you now there's no right way to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you oh. just shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're creating uh, new ways of doing things. Because sometimes what happens when you look at there's no big options in our neighborhood. Well, you have to create your options. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If they're not there, you have to learn to carve your way through. Uh, that's a very important part of it because people are waiting. Well, where's the big jobs? Where's it? Nobody's coming in. So, well, maybe you got to make your way, dude. I mean, you know, you got to help people realize they've got to rebuild themselves, their communities as best they can, even when very little. Because that's one of the things I try to teach these people. People coming out of these prisons, I, I can't get a job, can't do nothing. Says, well, what's your choice? Go back to prison? You don't got nothing. You got controlled every minute of your day. You want that? You, you, you're not going to own your life. The key for me that I had to learn, because when you're on heroin, you don't own your life. When you're in a gang, heavy duty, you're in it, you're not owning your life. You don't own your life. So look, I turned my life over to other things, everybody, other things. Now I got to own it. And if I'm going to own it, I'm going to have to carve my way, a safe, healthy way for my kids. You know, when my son was born, I was 20 years old. It changed my life. I know a lot of guys don't get changed that way, but it seems to me your kids change your life. I saw him and I held him. He says, I, I made a promise. I'm never going back to La Vida Loca. I'm never going back to this crazy life. Uh, I, it was him, you know, and I was still having problems with heroin. You know, I was still, eventually I let it all go, but it was him holding him. And then I, I'm never going to do it. Then to 15 years later in Chicago, he's joining the gang. It really messes with you. You know what I'm saying? You did everything you could to not be in that world for your own son to fall into the same traps. So then that's why you have to think about what kind of community we're going to carve for our youth, for our young people. Um, I had to move out of Humboldt Park because when my son was in prison, I have two young boys. And I go, I'm not gonna lose any more boys, you know what I'm saying? I have a daughter too. And so I'm not gonna lose any more kids, I'm not. Now, I moved back to LA, I didn't move back to the barrio. <laughs> you know, I moved into a really nice area of, uh, you know how you find these nice, uh, either Puerto Rican or, or Mexican nicer communities? That's where we're in now. It's a 99% Latino community, but it's nicer. You know what I'm yeah. saying? People are working. There's no really gang thing in this particular community, though we're surrounded by it everywhere you go. So it was better for my kids. You know what I'm saying? You got to think about these things. Where am I going to go where my kids don't have to face? But of course, I have 
grandkids in Chicago or in Illinois. If I don't, if I'm not there, they fall into the same traps. That's the sad thing. Yeah, I agree. And what for me, you know, my daughter was born. Um, yeah, I had decided, you know, I'm not going to be doing this shit no more, you know, but it was uh, just because I made decision doesn't mean the rest of the world made that same decision, you know, and then I yeah. found myself, uh, you know, getting injured, you know, shot, I, which I spoke yeah. multiple times in the podcast before, but I ended up still in harm's way. And that I think was one of the moments for me that it still took some time because I had to really obviously recover from the injury and, and yeah. go through that, that I realized like, you know, even if I make the change myself, uh, that's just me. I have to consider the world exactly. that my kids are going to be in. Not just, oh, hey, yeah. their dad, you know, my, my dad really turned his life around. Well, when they leave the house, it's not about the world that I made for myself. It's about the world that's available to them. And, that's true. you know, true. and when you talk about how, like, we have to carve our own path, you know, when I tell the, my guys that are in the hood now, I tell them all the time, we've been fighting here since we were children. And I mean children. Mm eight seven mm -hmm. years old mm -hmm. we were watching our friends mm -hmm. get killed already we've been crawling mm -hmm. through this shit our whole lives so you're telling me that we don't have the tenacity to pave our own way in a exactly. different world bullshit exactly. you know what i mean i think a lot of things that i feel like um that would have scared me and even coming up with this podcast i have um another podcast boybound chronicles and business where i'm working around uh pro fighters and stuff like that sports football and stuff sure you know? And we're working with them and uh, we're trying to get into the high schools with football because a lot of the kids were either in a gang or on a football team. That's kind of what was going on for us, you know, yeah. and uh, pretty much just all these ways that a lot of people were like afraid of, you know, rejection or what if it failed and stuff like that. I was getting up in the morning yeah. trying to not die. So when I deal with these things, I just do it because we have that tenacity because we've literally been fighting in exactly. such extreme circumstances. I tell these people all the time, we have, uh, that we have, we have built that that drive that push to get through it all that we just have to apply it to something else like if we really yeah. want to um, those are smart guys in the street oh yeah you know that they're hella smart and they also uh can move that same way of thinking to another area if those areas were there or if you make your way through there i i run my own business i do my own i've been doing this for since the book came out i don't work for nobody i why can't we do that? You know what I'm saying? Why can't we set up our own businesses? Learn how to do that. Just like people learn how to, you know, I was in Logan Square where I stopped an eight-year-old kid with a MAC-10 in his coat. I'm exactly what you're saying. It's like, that is not right for these kids. And I got pissed off and I'm like, who's the guy in this radio and this gang, this neighborhood, giving this guy MAC-10 to hold? You know what I'm saying? Because it's not his Mac then. Of course. <laughs> who's who's setting this kid up? And I knew that kid. I knew his mom. I had to take him to his mom. She was livid. She was hard. But I said, look, don't beat the kid up. But I tell you what, let's work with him. It's not, I'm going to go talk to these guys in the corner. And I did. I talked to these guys. And I wasn't going to be disrespectful, but I got pissed off. Like, what are you guys doing with this poor kid? You got to, you know, and they kind of like feel bad. and You know how it goes. But the problem is, that's the world that we're in. Can somebody else create another world for these kids? Can somebody else say there's another way to go? This is where proper healthy masculinity comes in, where men start showing people how to really be good, be good, strong, protective, but also healthy, vulnerable men, but also men who can take care of business. You know what I'm saying? And not just fall into the traps that everybody else falls into. I tell people when I'm in the prison, I'm telling these guys, guys, some of these guys have been there 30, 40, 50 years, some of them never getting out. But I tell them, you know that we played ourselves. We fell into all the traps, 
I get it. It's systematic, and that's true. But we also played ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We fell right into it. Yeah. Drugs came in. Yeah, let me shoot up any drug you got. Guns? Give me a gun? Yeah, who do I got to rob? You know what I'm saying? And after a while, you're just playing right into what I, my design was done. But some of us completely fell into all the traps. And I tell them, I don't got respect for that. I did it. I get it. I'm not blaming you. I, I did the same thing. My son did the same thing. But I don't respect people who just fall into what other people have set up. You know what I'm saying? This is when you got to create your own way. You got to think of your own design. You got to think of your own program. To me, that's that's the way to go. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Like I, I spent a lot of time, like especially when I kind of, I always say I stumbled into college because I, I mean, like our mom, um, when she joined the gang, she actually dropped out of high school. She was like 15, 16. Um, I'm pretty sure our dad finished high school. Oh yeah, he. Well, I don't know. He went to Clemente though, um, and he was in uh, gang at the time, or like kind of messing around with them. That's where my Amido was at. Yeah, I remember reading that through my there. Yeah, the intro. Um, and I went there for like my first month of high school. And I remember like Clemente had the genius idea, but it's like a side note, but this like always stands out to me when I think of those days at Clemente, that a genius idea of separating each floor like based on class yeah, subjects. Yeah. And, but they did that with different colored polos. Mm. There were red polos, there were blue polos, mm. there were green polos. I had a green polo because I was on the math floor. And so the mm. gangster disciples chased me back home every day for like a mm. month because I had the audacity to wear my polo outside of mm. school one day. And like that just like things like that really fucked with me. But like, going back off what Nelson said, like our, our parents glorified like this street mm -hmm. culture and like kind of like the violence. It was always the violence they took part in, which was glorified the most and which was mostly talked mm -hmm. about. But, and I always like, I always kind of found myself like slowly falling into those things, but somehow pulling out, like having like enough insight to know like this definitely, like one isn't the right thing, but two, it isn't you. Like everyone's right. telling you this should be you. And right. I remember one time when I was like, I want to say like 12, um, my mom was with this guy who was extremely abusive. Um, and he said something to me that really, I can't remember what it was, but it really upset me. And I remember like I went to my room and I was so upset that I cried about it. Mm. Like, which to me seemed like something, again, we we're talking earlier, like if men yeah. feel like they, like if something's bothering them so much, they want to cry, they mm. should feel comfortable enough to cry. Yeah. But I remember after that, my mom slapped me and told me that yeah. I shouldn't be crying. And yeah. Um, that boyfriend, he kept a shotgun in their closet. Um, and I snuck into the room that night and the shotgun was already loaded and I held it both above him and my mom. It's like, at that point I was already kind of like ruminating, like thoughts of suicide. Mm. Like I'd go into the bathroom, I'd sleep with this like massive knife. And I was like, but you know, it won't like, if I off them, then off myself, then no one really has to deal with the consequences, right? And I don't really have to go through this anymore. Sure. I don't have to deal with these emotions. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really thought about it, though. I'm like, how would that actually benefit me? Like, I've struggled these last, like, 12 years dealing with this shit, like, getting jumped, dealing with the abuse, like, can't express myself emotionally. And I kind of, like, when I went through... Um, high school after i lost a few friends i just kind of like really isolated everyone uh like including my siblings I didn't really talk to anyone because i was like i knew that 
if I gave them the opening, they would pull me back and I'd be stuck there forever. Mm -hmm. And I told myself that once I get out of here, I can kind of recreate and rebuild those relationships. They don't like, it's just like the forces like in those communities, like they're so powerful. It's like they have their own gravitational yeah. pull, right? And we're in their orbit and we don't yeah. really acknowledge that. Like you kind of get right. pulled into the vortex, but once I feel like it clicks, you get out of that. And so that's, that's always kind of been my mission. Like after uh, I wound up going to college, like no one in my family went, so I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Um, took out a lot of money to go. Um, but mm. it set you up that yeah, way exactly. too. Huh? That's what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> like, like oh, even when you feel like, and I tell people this all the time, I'm like, you don't get, they're like, oh, but you have a degree. I'm like, but you don't get like how much of myself I had to sell to get that shit culturally financially like spiritually i'm like it strips so much out of you especially when you see the white kids who aren't nearly as smart as you or your homies back home like getting full scholarships when their parents make my ex-girlfriend her parents made three hundred twenty thousand dollars a year combined and she had a full scholarship to go to our school like and i got a third of that so i'm like you know like there's shit like that that really like it, it can be demoralizing like i i considered dropping out so many times but i just always kind of reminded myself like going back to what like kind of nelson and you were saying earlier like i've gone through so much shit and shown so much tenacity throughout my entire life like had guns pulled on me then jumped a trillion times chased beaten by our mom you know other people like it just, it seemed like the burdens I was dealing with in college just weren't enough to warrant like my, my breaking. And I think um, mm-hmm. they really pushed me to kind of like- Now you older than Nelson? Yeah, I'm uh, 25. Oh. oh, good. So, you know, I, 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 my youngest son is 26, but I also have grandkids that are older than you guys, you know? So I, everything you're saying, they tell me. The, the, the age that you're in at this time is kind of like this weird age because I know that almost all these young people don't got a world set up for them. You know what I'm saying? They don't got a world, at least when I was growing up, you worked in a factory, you worked, you know, you had a job. That all died. And so then you're like, you're floating in the world. You're not grounded. Where's your grounding? And it's really hard. You don't want to be in a gang, but where's the other grounding that will keep you doing that? That's the world that my grandkids are in. Uh, I, by the way, I have a, Puerto Rican set of my family is my grandson is half Puerto Rican because of Humboldt Park. Uh, my son, Ramiro, had a, he had three baby mamas before he went to prison uh, for the rest of for all those years. And they were all from Humboldt Park and stuff. And one of them um, has my oldest grandson and she was Puerto Rican. The other ones were, um, but she was Puerto Rican. So this kid is came out of the same issue he wasn't going to be in no gang. Nobody's going to let him be in a gang, but he didn't know what he was going to do. And I remember when he was a young man, because he was living in Orlando, you know how many Puerto Ricans from Chicago ended up in Orlando. Yeah, so their, their whole family ended up there. So I would visit him every once in a while, and he's grandpa, grandpa, and I, and I would come and visit him. So one day uh, they said he liked to draw. So I took him to an art store, and I told him, Miko, I want you to get anything you want here. Really, all the anything, pencils, paper, whatever you want, I'll pay for it. And I didn't know he was really going to buy all that shit. I go, oh my god! But you know what? He okay, cool. I I promised him. You know, he's a big graphic artist now. 
He's a well-known graphic artist. He lives in North Carolina now with his girlfriend. He's uh, 28, 29 years old. He's doing great graphic arts. He's like getting, he's getting paid. He's working for a group called Poder, which is, helps um, Latino people in North Carolina. And uh, he's doing all the graphic arts. He's making good money. You know what I mean? One moment that I just gave him this thing, and I didn't know he was going to take it seriously. Man, he took off with it, man. He went to Central Florida University, got into the art school. I'm sure he a lot of money, but the point is he did it. And I think that's an example compared to my granddaughter, my other granddaughter, who's now we're trying to keep make sure she doesn't fall back into drugs. But he takes the example, he's going to make his way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think both of you have that, as you both have that. What other choices do you have? You either do that or you fall into somebody else's plan or somebody else's way of doing things. And there's a lot of comfort in that. I tell people, addiction to drugs, alcohol, or any kind of addiction, underlying all addiction is addiction to misery. That's what people don't get. We, why do we get addicted to misery? Because we're afraid of the unknown. The unknown is happiness. The unknown is actually doing some good where it's unknown. We'd rather be in the misery and you get stuck to that and you'd rather keep in the small dramas of all the craziness than to get to an unknown place because that unknown place is scarier. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I think what you both have proven that you got to hit the unknown. You got to go out there and try to make your way. You got to go out there and challenge yourself, match up to whatever challenge that comes along. We got to teach our kids to do that. This world is not necessarily going to be made for them, though that's great if it could. They got to figure out how to be in that unknown place instead of get so addicted to the misery that they can't get away from it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and like really quickly off the point of addicted to the misery, it reminded me of something my uh, like first real therapist um, when I was going to school in Iowa, because uh, I had like a few after... Like my mom split with the, or not split, after we were taken from my mom and her very abusive boyfriend, like my dad, he didn't really, you know, he was also very cold. Like he didn't really care to address the issues with me. So he just kind of hired someone and hoped that they would take care of it. But I didn't talk to her. We would sit there for hours on end and I'd just sit there also drawing or writing in this journal that my eighth grade teacher had given me. But this therapist, his name was Chris in Iowa. He's some white farm boy. He grew up really poor and then, you know, made his way through college first in his family. So we kind of related on like that poverty and like first to college uh, kick. But he told me one time I, I walked in. I remember um, I walked in after this class, this live literature class where I wrote this essay kind of for performance. It was like a 12 minute piece about kind of like this abusive relationship that my mom was in earlier, um, the guy that was actually Nelson's godfather, and how I always felt like every time we interacted, his response was to hit me regardless of what it was. And then I compared that to a conversation I had with my therapist, which was whenever I got upset, I would hit myself. That's the only way I understood how to like calm myself down because that's how people showed emotion to me, right? It was never positive. It was always, you know, a physical response. And we were talking about things like that. And I was talking about my relationship with the girl I was dating at the time and like all these different student clubs I was trying to run, including the Latin student union. And it all, none of it made me happy, but I feel like I had to do it. And he told me, he's like, you know, Randy, you're kind of a glutton for punishment. Like, he's like, it seems mm -hmm. like 
all these things that you know are really like pulling you down and like dragging you away from what your actual mission is. Like you can't seem to let them go out of guilt Mm. and out of fear that if like you let them go, then everything that's ahead of you is something you've never known before. And thus Mm. you won't feel comfortable confronting it. He's like, but literally everything you're doing right now, like leaving your neighborhood, going to school, doing these things are the unknown, Mm -hmm. but you're still convincing yourself that you can't exist in that realm and yeah just what what you said the uh addicted to misery that just really like stood out to me um and kind of brought me back to that because i definitely agree um after that like i made um that was the last time i saw him actually um and i just made a lot of big adjustments in what i was doing um and i feel like it, it definitely has benefited me in that like I'm able to like shed that toxicity that exists in a lot of night beyond our lives, like within our families and our communities. And I've been able to look at like how I can properly like give back, but give back in a way that one that not only makes me feel fulfilled because I feel like that's important. Like a lot of people, they really Mm -hmm. like, they, they have this idea that they have to become martyrs, but I'm like, you don't have to give your life for this shit. You can get fulfillment out of this thing. Like you just have to be willing to kind of go through the trial and error of it. Um, and I've really learned that. And I feel like it, like, you know, acknowledging that and acknowledging that these things are toxic to you and I need to find a way to break them down makes it easier to break down in the long run. You got to. uh, So Randy, do you have kids? No, I don't. That's kids are a big fear of mine. <laughs> yeah, that's another unknown. But at least that's important for people to know. You've got to be uh, getting away from the comfortable misery that many of us fall into. Get into a place where you can. I, I've had conversations with my own kids about this. You've got to risk the happiness, you know, because they're so unriskful, but they stay with the pit dramas and all the pains, you know what I'm saying? They stay with it, like, yeah. you know, gotta risk the happiness. Even if it doesn't quite fall into place, it's better that you went there and tried than not. Happiness is a kind of a fleeting thing, but the other side of it, if you know more of it, if you know what joy is, you'll end up knowing how to get more of it. You know, I'm 27 years sober, uh, June 30th, 27 years sobriety. I didn't think I'd ever get there. I was 27 years, on drugs and alcohol. So now I'm finally getting the same amount of time sober as I was drugs and alcohol, finally. And now I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the hump then. I'm finally gonna go into a time in which I'm gonna be longer sober than I was not sober. That's a powerful thing. It takes a long time to get there. It takes a long time to feel that. I went through a lot of suffering and therapy and whatever work I need to do to stay sober the long as I have. But it's paid off, you know, over the long run. And that's important. I never thought that I would ever be so, because after I let go of the drugs, I drank for 20 years on top of all the drugs, 20 years drinking. The drinking did more damage to my body than the damn heroin. You know what I'm saying? And so now I'm, I'm 66 years old this year. I'm healthier than I've been since I was 30. You know what I'm saying? I'm really healthier now. Uh, things have really gotten made a big turn in my life. And so that's what people got to know. It's always possible. But again, you got to risk the happiness, risk trying to find your ownership, risk trying to be there in a different way, risk trying to go to something like colleges. Yeah, maybe it's crazy about money, but risk something that's going to get you stabilized. You know what I'm saying? Instead of staying with the familiar, which is all misery, you know, the things that you all grew up with. And um, 
and you and you don't got too many guidance how to get out of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. And you know, for listeners out there that come from the ghettos like Randy and well, all three of us here on the pod today, you know what I mean? When you guys are mm-hmm. thinking about taking the risk, here's the thing for me. When I started to think about all the risks I had to take, at some point I had to rationalize it and justify it for myself, right? Because if not, I would have never done it. And then I just thought about it. Let's think about it. I'm risking, uh, you know, risking uh, failing, risking losing some money, losing some money and stuff like that. But every day I come onto these streets and I'm risking my entire life. So if if we're really talking about risk here, we're taking the ultimate risk every day. We stay in the hood and doing what we're doing. And... True. You know, in my opinion, um, back to what, you know, you were saying, Louis, about like, you know, if there's nothing there, we have to make it. We have to make it for ourselves. And in my neighborhood, I feel like there is nothing there for us. Nobody wanted to see us around. There was no there was no programs. There was nothing going on over there. And I spent my whole life there. I would know. You know, Mm -hmm. I dropped out of high school and uh, I ended up getting my GD so I could join the military. But I dropped out of high school to hang out. You know what I mean? I was hanging out on the corner, bullshitting. Uh, hanging out with everyone, playing games and shit, fighting motherfuckers. You know what I'm saying? That's what I was doing. And uh, yeah. I-, I wanted to be the leader of the set. That that Those were my aspirations. I became the chief of, the, of that neighborhood, all the shorties. I had been there like five years. I got all the shorties <laughs> and shit. And then, uh, like, uh, you know, then I'm like, yeah. what am I going to do with, with these guys, right? And then I just thought about it. Well, I want to be in leadership, but this isn't the kind of leadership that I want to be in, you know? And so yeah. I made that, obviously I made that transition. And, and like you spoke about earlier, like not a lot, of, not everyone wants that. Not everyone wants us to change the neighborhood, the flow of things, you know what I mean? And so I came against my resistance yeah. with that too. I started getting into fights with people. They were SOS was out on me and shit like that because I disbanded in the neighborhood. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I just thought, okay, I still want to be in leadership. As a matter of fact, I, that's exactly what I want to do. You know what I mean? Exactly. So I'm just going to do it that's differently. Exactly right. And I'm going to take that risk because what was I doing? I was risking my life and the lives of a whole bunch of clueless others, kids younger than me at this point now, you know, the freshmen in high school. What kind what kind of man am I if I'm recruiting these 14 year olds to go do my bidding? Because I was like 10 years old, 11 years old, already running around with guns. So why would I do that to them, though? You know, really wanted to what we talk about is rewriting the narrative at Homies of Lit. And that is why, you you know, I thought about how I was trying to rewrite the narrative everywhere, like with you know, glory bound. And I'm trying to do some stuff with, you know, these local rappers and stuff like that with all the sports and stuff. And I just thought about the truth is, is I was involved in sports, powerlifting, weightlifting, et cetera. I joined the military, but the real thing that really changed for me when, when I wanted to start changing things as far as people were actually my teachers, I failed and everything I dropped out, but it was the teachers even after mm-hmm. I left that were really there and they mm-hmm. really cared, which is why if you think cool. about it, they're in that community That's and great. they're trying to do these things. Right. And so when I thought of Homies of Lit and me and Randy were talking about putting it together, I just thought like the, the real gap there is, is that we feel like nobody relates to us in the hood unless you're from the hood doing hood shit, right? And so I thought, yeah, well, yeah. guess what? Randy, Randy's from the same hood as I am, but Randy went to college. I'm from the hood. I did a lot of shit in the hood. People still know me in the neighborhood. I still come across people that clearly don't like me for it, right? But I'm trying to do things differently. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know what? Just like yeah. how my teachers showed me that there was different people and there was different ways to go about things, because there were some teachers that are uh, that are my older brother's age, Nico, that are that were my teachers. Then they went to the same mm-hmm. middle schools I did. They went to Foreman when I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to Foreman. We had the same teachers mm-hmm. and shit, and they were now my high school mm-hmm. teacher. You know what I mean? And it was my Spanish yeah. teacher, Miss Sanchez, and she was an example of that. And I just really thought 
you know, we need more examples of people who came exactly from where we're from, but took hold of their lives. And got it together. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And yeah, and you know what? I, I want to help, if I can, what you guys are doing. We need more people doing what you're doing. We need people who've been there. Uh, and both of you have been there in your own two ways. You know what I'm saying? You've been there, but then you found an, an intersection. And we need to, uh, that's what Always Run is really about. When you read the book, that's just really the message there is that. Um, I have a lot of people that read the book and they think it's about gangs. And I'm not, no, it's, it's hardcore. There's a lot of hardcore stuff that happens there. But in my message, exactly what you just said, Nelson, and what you, Randy, have been expressing. We need to do this and we need to help people understand there's other ways to go. Uh, even if you fall into all the traps, you can still pick yourself up from them. And you can get stronger because to me, all the ordeals can help us get wise and strong enough that we can bless the community for what we learn. And you all blessing the community with, with this podcast. You know what I'm saying? You're blessing it by bringing back what you learned, everything you've been through, every pain, every beating, every whatever happened, every betrayal, every abandonment becomes a way that you can give back. And that's what we need. I work in these prisons. I tell these guys coming out. But I got, I'm, I'm in this hardcore prison where these guys tattooed all over their faces. They got, they got limbs missing. They're sitting there in hardcore general population. One guy, no leg because he got shot out, shotgun. One guy, no arm because when he was 12 years old, he got drive by, you know what I'm saying? And they're still sitting there in prison and I'm thinking, do you all think you can do any good in the world? And they say, no, I mean, I can't. I'm sitting, but I'm, I'm doing life. I'm not getting out. It says, you can do a lot of good. And the best way is to get your life together and then people will listen to you if you do that. They're not gonna listen to you if you're acting like a fool. And so this is my goal to get people who've been through these streets that you're talking about, hopefully the people who lived in these neighborhoods and these ghettos and everything else, they, they can hear what you're saying, that they get inspired to know that they don't have to carry that old weight. You know what I mean? That they gotta let go some of those dead things and think about these new things that are being born, new things that can come out, being born now, instead of carrying a whole bunch of corpse, you know, all of us carrying corpse all our lives of every pain, every suffering, homie that died, you know, I just so you know really quickly, I had a, I had an enemy who uh, shot at me and then ended up uh, shooting my homeboy. He lost his eye. Uh, he was a really badass guy from my rival gang, and we this war between my neighborhood and that gang. There's still a war. So the great grandfathers that have been fighting this war. You know what I'm saying? So this guy, he becomes the artist of his neighborhood. I became the artist of my neighborhood, but we were still enemies. Um, we went two different directions. I recently heard, not that long ago, that his son got killed by my homies. New generation, his son. So I contacted him um, and I told him, you know, who I am. And he goes, I know who you are. And because my book is, my book is well known. People know me. It's in the prison system. People know who I am. So I know who you are, bro. He says, yeah, I think we should have dinner. He says, really? You want to have dinner? He says, yeah, I need, we need to talk. My son was in prison. His son just got killed. And so we had a beautiful dinner, man. And, uh, and we talked about, you know, all the pain we caused each other, all the pain in his own son gone. You know what I'm saying? He actually lost two sons. So it's sad to have two sons gone. Um, but we decided we were going to do everything we can as grandfathers and people help our youth. You know what I'm saying? Now he's a famous tattoo artist. He's quite famous. He just put out a book, and I recommend it. It's called Smile Now, Cry Later. Seven Stories Press. His name is Freddie Negrete. 
you should get that. It's a memoir of his story because I convinced somebody to help do his story um, and get it published, you know, like always running. But here's my enemy. You see what I'm saying? We were trying to kill each other. He shot at homeboys. I shot his, his homeboys. We've been back and forth for years. And here we have this beautiful dinner and we're saying we're not going to be about war anymore. You know what I'm saying? We're not going to be about we're gonna to try to change what's possible. So I always use that story to let people know anything's possible if you risk those moments, you know. And that's what you all have done with the show. And I and I for whatever we can do to help get people to see it and understand it, that'd be powerful. Yeah, and just like really quickly for my closing comments, um, I do I do agree that with your book particularly i could when I, the entire time i was reading it just like when i read like down these mean streets and when we talked about oscar Wilde, like we mentioned this too like there's kind of like this propensity by like mainstream culture typically white culture like to find some way to demonize a work of art mm-hmm. by an artist of color yeah. but the entire time i was reading a book and i actually kept the quote um like I was taking all these notes on my phone because again I was like cranking this out because you know shout out to USPS for still operating despite not getting any funds from the government. But um, on page one twenty four, you talk about um, there's a conversation you have with your boy Wilo, and you you basically tell him that he saved your life um, when I'm pretty sure you were uh, on the verge of overdosing. Yeah. Um, and he tells you, you don't owe me nothing, just pay yourself back. And yeah. that, like, that line stood out to me the most um, out of the entire book because, I mean, it really just resonates with the entire message that you've been sending throughout this interview and that we've been talking about, the idea that you kind of, like, for, it, it's really easy to just, I'd say, like, look at all things people have done, say thanks and not really act on it, you know? It's like... But it's a lot more difficult to really go out of your way, go out of your comfort zone, get away from your community and pave something else for yourself. And I feel like that's something that just like, I mean, people in general struggle with unfamiliarity, but when we come from communities like these, like it, it just feels impossible. You know, I always think about like what the parents feel when they lose a kid, whether it be, you know, to gun violence, whether they like physically lose them, they lose them to jails. Um, and one of my, when one of my best childhood friends uh, was killed when I was um, 16, I remember just really thinking, I'm like, what, what is his dad thinking right now? And, you know, then I actually met him and his dad was just kind of perpetuating the same thing. It's like, you know, the other kids during games were just gonna keep going, you know, he was just unfortunate casualty. And when I'm doing my writing, um, I wrote a story from the perspective of my mother. Um, this time we got evicted when I was seven and we literally had nowhere to go. So we just, we slept in the park. We slept in um, her friend's like closets on the floors. And the entire time I just remember thinking like whenever I would ask my mom, like if she was okay, she'd just get like very tense, very defensive. Like, you know, I'll figure it out. Just let me figure it out. And you just always wonder like, they clearly don't have the guidance that I've been given. Like I've been, I've been lended so many open doors, right? And it took a while before I finally stepped through that door and realized that it was a path onto something better. But like you get so enraptured by all the things happening that you don't think to go through that door. So when I read that line, 
um, for me, it just kind of epitomized that. Like, it was the figurative door, a second chance at life. Like, don't fuck it up. Like, you have to run away with this. And But again, like, run in a positive direction. And, like, whenever I tell myself, like, once you stop running, you start dying. Like, it's like, once you fall back into that path, like, you're done. Like, you know where you're going is right. Like, but you can't allow something to stunt you from getting to your ultimate goal, right? Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that. And I thought, again, that the book, I think, is extremely poetic. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. It's really yeah. kind of showcases, like, your gifts, one, as a writer, but I think particularly as a poet, I felt like that really came out, like, a lot of the language, the descriptions, especially, like, your interactions with all all the girls and the women that you felt a deep emotional connection to even upon first contact. Um, I forget her name, the one that you met. Um, you said you both uh, kind of got booked together and you're trying to figure out how to get out of that together. It's just like this. Oh, oh the last time, yeah, and Lecha, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, they were, they were going to give me a big prison term. Uh, but again, I was fortunate. It's like you're saying, things come for a reason. I was fortunate that people stood up. They went to the court. They went and wrote letters on my behalf. This judge, I don't even remember the name, said he'd never seen anybody do that. Nobody, people show up in court by themselves. They don't hardly have family, you know. And then the people stepped up to help me. I didn't know why people really wanted to help me. That's important to know. So thank you for all that. And I, tell, I hope, again, that we can talk some more and or continue getting at what you guys are doing because... I think our young men, our young people need to hear what you're doing and need to hear these kind of conversations and that books can change lives. I just really quickly, I couldn't write for beans. I didn't, they punished me for speaking Spanish. The only reason I can still speak Spanish because my mom and dad, that's all they spoke. To the day they died, they never spoke stop speaking Spanish. But I couldn't speak Spanish, but they didn't teach us English very well. You know what I'm saying? You go to these schools, it was my revenge against that society was to be a, a writer, to be the best writer I could be. That was my revenge. I wasn't going to shoot nobody anymore. You know, I wasn't going to go after blow up buildings. I'm not going to do any of that nonsense. But now I'm going to get my revenge for being the best writer I could be. The thing that they took away from my voice, I eventually used and got my voice. You know what I'm saying? So that's important. Hey, guys, um, for the listeners out there, um, you know, um, when we're when you guys are listening to what they're saying, you know, if you, uh, for example, like you know, Randy talking about, um, you know, how he was kind of overcoming and overcoming situation and how doors were being presented to him and and that weren't presented to our, you know uh, the generations before us. Um, if you guys are sitting there and you guys just have that feeling that like maybe there isn't a door open to you, um, I understand that feeling. I, at one point in my life, I felt like there were no doors open to me. And I used to say this shit all the time. I'll say it to my oldest brother all the time. I used to say that this is all that I know, right? It's just one of those things. I think it's the worst sentence you could say to yourself because you convince yourself that that's the situation and the circumstance that you're in. However, if it's all that you know, it's all that you know right now. There's nothing in this world stopping you from knowing more and obtaining knowledge. So if there isn't a door being open for you, bust that motherfucker down yeah. and go through and figure it out yourself. There you go. And right now, and we're... For everyone in my neighborhood, personally, uh, we're going through some tough times. We just suffered the loss of, you know, our friend Israel. Um, you know, he was shot in the head. Um, you know, last uh, last week, you know, it's a 
you know, it's, it's a big loss for us. And I know a lot of people are angry in the neighborhood right now, as am I. And we're going to take these opportunities to channel our anger, right? And a lot of you guys are thinking of doing some bad shit and doing some bad things. And we hope that this conversation really helps you guys. It's really put the focus, guys, that we need to take steps into a different direction. We cannot continue to rewrite the same story here. It's a loss, and we need to take that loss and allow it to fuel us to do things positively. Because I know in my head, I'm thinking, why does this keep happening? I'm doing this podcast. I'm trying to change all these things, but it's not happening fast enough. However, to say that it's not happening at all would be a disservice to myself and everything that we're doing here. We have to just continue to keep things in motion mm -hmm. because those doors, if you guys feel like you guys don't have any doors, we're trying to open up those doors right now. We're offering doors. You guys can contact us and send us your, your writing. If you guys are more into music and sports, I have a brand for that, Glorybound Chronicles. If you guys are into designing clothing, I have a fitness um, apparel brand. Be fast, be first. There's there's mediums. I thought about as many mediums as I, could, I can. I thought of everything everyone in the hood is doing, and I tried to find a way to incorporate that into something positive. You guys, if you guys are artistic, athletic, whatever it is, mm -hmm. take this take this emotion you guys had and just express yourself. Uh, we all got the guns. We're picking them up. We're shooting each other. We've been killing each other. Me personally, been doing this, uh, involved mm -hmm. in that that world my whole life, and really was involved in it for the past nine years. It's not going to do anything for all of us out there mourning Israel right now is mm -hmm. the time for us to find our voice and our voice is not in the hood getting after anyone else. Mm -hmm. We have to kick those doors out. If you're angry, open up a new door for yourself. Mm -hmm. Let's unlock new pathways outside of what we're already doing. Mm -hmm. and, and with that, that's my final message for this mm -hmm. entire conversation. Well, thank you both. And uh, hopefully next time we do this, make, bring my son. He's also very good about speaking on these issues. And he, he loves Chicago. He loves Humboldt Park. So anyway, thank you for having me. Right? It was really great. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Um, and anyone who's interested in reading this book, again, titled Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. Again, another shout out to Sandra Cisneros for connecting us to Luis Rodriguez. She's a great friend, great friend. Also Humble Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shout out to Humble Park for connecting us. Like I said in the Sandra episode, I actually met her in Iowa. Then we found out we both grew up at Humble Park and we were like, oh shit, I'm like this is dope. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we really encourage people, at least me especially, like I, I went to school for writing, I studied literature and I, I always say that there's one book, Invisible Man, that I was told to read my senior year of high school that really changed my life um, and made me take writing more seriously and want to become a writer. Um, there, again, the goal of Homies of Lit, we're trying to illuminate these texts for you and these artists for you so that you can find those voices to really represent yourself. So please do take it seriously and don't just listen to our conversations about the books, but read the books yourselves and formulate your own thoughts and then join in on the conversation. Um, but with that, we'll close out this episode. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you. All right, guys. Signing out.